That means that you could accurately and reliably predict ahead of time. You could predict ahead of time how well someone's going to respond to a program, which you can't do, how quickly they're going to respond, right? So do they gain 10% in strength in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, one week? Okay. And further, the, what their day-to-day performance is going to be on average. The idea that that stays static, I mean, that's not based in any sort of research. We know that people will go up and down like a sinusoidal wave, right? They'll have days, oh man, I'm feeling it, days I'm not feeling it. And it's like, so you have three variables going on at once. So how the hell are you going to predict stuff in advance? The only thing I can predict is unpredictability. And so having tools baked into the program that allows somebody to match that training stimulus allows me to feel confident that the progression is going to be there or at least uh, uh, you know, suit well-suited to where they're currently at. Greetings, Leg Talk Nation. Welcome. Welcome back. If it's your first time, welcome home. This week, we've got an incredible episode lined up for you. We're talking to somebody who is just an absolute legend in the space. Alex, who do we have on this week? We have the Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Um, If you don't recognize the name immediately, but it sounds familiar, you've probably been exposed to his content through Barbell Medicine, his company. And as the name Barbell Medicine implies, uh, Dr. Feigenbaum is both a strength coach and a medical doctor. In addition to a bunch of classic credentials, CSCS, ACSM health and fitness specialist, USA weightlifting, CrossFit Oval One. He spent a long time with starting strength seminar staff, and then of course got his MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School. Uh, on top of that, he kind of walks the walk. He doesn't just talk the talk. He's an elite power lifter who can claim one of the top 20 totals of all time. Uh, his best performance, he was 198 pounds and he squatted 640 pounds, benched 430 pounds, and deadlift did 725 pounds. Outside of coaching, he's an avid reader and traveler, and you'll pick up during the episode a little bit. He's got a really impressive ability to just kind of cite details of research off the cuff that are extremely relevant to the conversation in a way I wish I could. This was one of those episodes that for me as a strength coach was a little bit surreal and kind of one of the things that makes me glad that we decided to do this podcast in the first place, because you get the chance to talk to guys like this. Jordan and Barbell Medicine have been hugely influential with regards to how I program for myself, for the athletes that I work with. And he, he, he's also one of those guys like Alec from a few episodes back. that's super worth the follow on Instagram just because of the number of Q and A's he posts, the number of research articles he talks about the content so enjoy the conversation uh enjoy jordan and i'm I'm out of things to enjoy at this point well i'll tell you there's a special shout out to this one because the whole conversation happened entirely because of a debate in instagram stories so starting fights produced something very productive here that is true alex started a fight an intellectual battle Jordan was tagged. No, it was based off of a, of a video Jordan posted. Uh-huh. And then we got him on the podcast. So for all of you out there that disagree with what we say, please reach out, please engage, because that tends to lead to really cool guests. So enjoy. We're not great podcasters, but we're worse actors for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, that's cool though. You guys are getting some traffic, so it's well-deserved. Well, let me ask you this because 
we can go in a million different directions here. I mean, you guys sure. have a massive platform, but to, to tee things off, I'm curious because I've been a fan for a long time. Medical background, you've got powerlifting background, coaching background, all of the above. When you are asked what a coach is, oh, I'm curious. Yeah, right. The easiest question ever. I'm just curious. And I think mostly from like dealing with patients in that space, because that's a lot of kind of the population we work with, not that they're sick, ill and injured, but it's a different population than like an elite sport population. So I'm curious when you think about a coach, what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, so in all of these arenas, you're coaching, right? It's just some of it's behavioral change coaching. Other stuff is, you know, more granular adjustments of like actual, you know, the nuts and bolts of a program to elicit top end performance or, you know, in your guys' case, top end testing when they have to go through the ACFT or, or whatever, uh, or injury risk reduction, all things. So in, in, you know, in medicine, it's coaching, but it's behavioral change type coaching for the most part, you know, engaging in enough physical activity to reduce risk of disease or eating a health promoting dietary pattern, or even just taking medications, right. Being adherent to a, a medication, a medical intervention, something like that. But then when it comes to like sports medicine, a lot of this stuff, uh, isn't, you know, people are already doing that. And so you're kind of cranking it up to the next level, like, okay, cool. Well, you're exercising, but let's tweak these parameters. And then you get even further down the line into actual competitive athletes and you're, you're just ratcheting it up. And so it's coaching, you know, the whole way through just different, I don't know, different types and different levels of complexity and, and stuff like that. That's so what is a coach at someone, uh, who is making recommendations to elicit a change. I mean, really at that base level. And so just what level of change and what are your, you know, uh, what, are, what are, what levers do you have access to pull? So for a strength conditioning coach that you got a lot, some levers, right. You can adjust the program. You can adjust nutrition. You can adjust supplementation. You can adjust all sorts of stuff like that. Some elements of lifestyle. And then if you're a physician, you have more levers to pull, uh, on some level and then less levers, <laughs> uh, because, well, cause how do you discuss exercise, right? If you, if the average, uh, primary care visit is, you know, a handful of minutes, you're like, well, we can screen you for the stuff that, it, you know, age appropriate screenings, stuff related to your medical history, your family, medical history, et cetera. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, we should talk about exercise, but we'll do that at your next visit. <laughs> or, I mean, you know, that's, that's how it would work in a normal, in a normal clinic when you're seeing 30, you know, patients a day and you're on a clock. Uh, so yeah, that. But, but, you know, making recommendations and working with the individual based on their preferences and resources and stuff like that to elicit a change. It's, I mean, it feels like coaching all the way through. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause it was something I was wondering about. Um, I have friends from college who are MDs now and my old roommates is an MD now. And it, it seems like what they were like told in medical school was that you're not going to have the time to really dig into behavioral change stuff with your patients. Like they, they rationally acknowledge the importance of lifestyle and health. Mm -hmm. but they kind of ignore it from a clinical standpoint because they just don't have the time or bandwidth because of the number of patients they have to see in the day. And I'm curious yeah. about like, do you, do you think doctors have more levers to pull in terms of lifestyle stuff? Or do you honestly think coaches might have more levers to pull in terms of contact time with the people to elicit changes? Yeah. I mean, you definitely have more face time, you know, a coach does, or like a trainer or, you know, whatever. And, I, and to be clear, I do not make this arbitrary distinction between trainers and coaches. I feel like, again, well, it's, it's like the difference between, yeah, well, it's different. It's like the difference between training and exercise, right? Just made up <laughs> arbitrary criteria that's self-serving to the person making the distinction. And I'm like, 
I don't care, guys. So I I don't even call it training anymore. I call it exercise training just to annoy. Both How dare you? you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, but but to your to your point um, about you know time spent. Uh, so the best data we have on this sh- shows that the number needed to treat so the amount of patients you need to see who are previously insufficiently active, so not meeting the physical activity guidelines, uh, to get one person to sustain chronic adherence. So over a year, it meeting or exceeding the physical activity guidelines is 12. And that requires something like less than a minute of actual like interface with them. So effectively you say, we should exercise. Here's what we should do. Here are some resources, send them on the way. Is that the optimal type of behavioral change? Well, of course not. You would want to, you know, say, Hey, what do you have access to? What can we do? What do you want to do, et cetera. And kind of like sketch out a plan that the person is an active manager and you know, choosing their own adventure and follow up with them on short, you know, short notice. So that way you're just making sure that they're starting off on the right track. And then maybe that number drops right from 12 to eight or seven or six or whatever, or or worst case scenario, you refer them to an exercise professional, right? That's like somewhere nearby and uh, that they can afford or is otherwise subsidized. It'd be great if it was in the clinic. Oh yeah. Just walk down the hall, see Drew. He's right right there. Um, That would be ideal. That way you don't, you get less sort of churn or, or, or you miss less people. But with the number needed to treat of 12, with that short level of interface, I feel like, you know, doctors mainly because of their, the, where the, the, their, the hierarchy and the kind of like the trust that's already there, it, they, you're making up for the lack of time with sort of this trust that's already there. I don't know. And if the doctor says, yeah, you should exercise, you're like, yeah, maybe I probably, probably should. Um, But yeah, I, it would be better. It'd be better if you had more time. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in many settings, the best you can do is refer. And so the bigger problem in my, in my view is that doctors are not doing the refer, the referrals, like, or they can't do the referrals, right? You can't refer to a dietitian until somebody has diabetes, not if they have prediabetes or like on that pathway, or you can't refer to an exercise professional because you don't have any, you don't know any, like you're not aware or you don't feel comfortable discussing these things. I mean, there are a whole bunch of barriers that have been identified in the literature as to why primary care physicians are not actively engaging in this stuff. So right now, the best, the most recent data we've seen on this is that uh, less than 10% of primary care physicians even know what the current, that the current physical activity guidelines exist. And of the 10% that know that they exist, less than half of them are referring their patients to do it, like, like recommending it. So just, you know, so how do you fix that? Is it an education thing? Because, you know, I went through medical school relatively recently and we didn't learn anything about the physical activity guidelines. To your point, it's more like lip service is paid to lifestyle interventions. Like, oh yeah, of course you should eat a health promoting diet. And of course you should exercise. It's like, cool. So what does that look like? Right. And, and then, and further, how do we, in our limited time that we get to interface with the patients, how do we even recommend that to bring it up? or refer, you know, like how literally, uh, primary or lifestyle interventions, what do like how, how, (laughs) uh, so yeah, is it an education thing? So we probably should shore that up. Um, honestly, if it's like a checkbox on the EMR, like, did you counsel your patient on exercise? Like check the box, make, make sure you did it. Same thing on uh, dietary patterns. And, you know, of course you can't do it at every visit. If it's a medication refill, if it's, you know, a emergency visit for something else unrelated to, to lifestyle. Uh, yeah, you probably can't do it every visit, but, um, if we took that 10% that even know what 
ex the exercise guidelines are, and we raise that to 30%, and that we know the number needed to treat is 12. I mean, how many more people do we get engaging in exercise? That'll be huge. Um, and so that, and that's just that, that's the bottom of the pyramid, right? As you go up to like sports medicine or ortho, or, uh, you know, you get some in some of these niche populations, it's like, does their knowledge of exercise get better? <laughs> and I don't, I don't think that's the case. That hasn't been my experience, you know, interfacing with, uh, sports medicine professionals or orthopedic, you know, uh, surgeons, and that's not a knock against them. Why, how would they know? unless they have a personal interest in this sort of stuff. And in which case it's like, so you had to seek out additional knowledge. Where did you go? How good is that knowledge? Like all sorts of stuff. So yeah, big, big issue for sure. Well, it makes me think of it because we've talked about this before and I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm probably biased because my entire career has been in tactical human performance, but I feel like in this space more so than maybe even the collegiate or professional space as a coach, you're confronted with the medical model a lot more frequently than you would be if you're just kind of in the sports world. And so we've kind of pushed this out on, on coaches or really anybody who's involved in these, these teams of like, you do have to have an understanding of what is going on on the medical side of the house and then vice versa, the folks on the medical side of the house, it helps to be able to kind of walk the walk with the folks that spend the most amount of time interfacing with the soldiers, which in our case would be the strength coaches. And so I guess the question there for you, because you're very experienced on both sides of these things is like, do you see a world where it, it's less of a siloed kind of access to care and more of a spectrum, if that makes sense, where like not saying there's strength coaches in hospitals or doctors in general or whatever, but it's just understood that like, Hey, the intervention across the board is whatever is appropriate for the patient slash athlete slash whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I, in my utopia, yeah, I <laughs> well, well, so, so ultimately what you'd want is you'd want physicians who are them, they themselves are meeting the physical activity guidelines, right. Engaged in some sort of regular physical activity that, that they find enjoyable or whatever. And, you know, that's going to include some element of resistance training and some elements of aerobic conditioning. And so they have this like personal experience with it. And that allows them to kind of you know, interact with the patient and share and share these sort of experiences and, and, and have some level of knowledge there. And they probably feel more comfortable also, uh, uh, sort of recommending it from that, from that standpoint. And then you'd also want the strength coaches and the, and the trainers and the fitness professionals to have a knowledge, uh, some base level of knowledge of like, look, uh, the a majority of your clients are going to have at least one medical condition. And here's how that interacts with, their training. And so that's what, I mean, that's what we're trying to do, right. Is to bridge that gap. And it's like, we don't want these two entities to be separate They're, They need to be related. And, you know, from a medical perspective, it's like, yeah, obviously there are clear benefits to these lifestyle changes. So how do we get that to be recommended and, you know, and pushed, uh, harder. And then from the fit, uh, from the fitness and performance side, it's like, yeah, you're going to interface with people who have high blood pressure, type two diabetes, who are coming back from surgery or injuries and all these other sorts of things. And it's like, great. So what are the real restrictions, if any, and what sort of sort of training related modifications need to be in place uh, so that they get great results? So you don't hurt anybody and this, that, and the other. And I think what's happened, unfortunately, is that you have these like very risk averse recommendations that are just made up out of nowhere. And so it's like, you know, if post, for example, uh, one of the best examples is a uh, post hernia operation, right? So hernias are super, super common. Inguinal hernias are the most common. And um, the recommendation after hernia repair 
surgery in general from surgeons is not to lift anything, you know, greater than five pounds for whatever. They make it up three months, six months. Yeah, ever. <laughs> but the international hernia guidelines, international hernia guidelines say there should be no restrictions in exercise postoperatively. No restrictions. They make a point that all of these recommendations are just made up, not based on evidence. And the existing evidence that we do have suggests no increase in uh, uh, complications from people who do engage in exercise in close proximity to their uh, to the operations. Same thing after like radical mastectomy, uh, lymph node dissection, stuff like that. And these are like not supervised exercise sessions. They basically send people home with weights and say, yo, lift the shit out of these things. And they're like, <laughs> OK, and there and there are no difference in complications. And so. I mean, you can't hang your hat on that for every surgical procedure, obviously, but you would want to get to a world where, again, physicians are more comfortable talking about this stuff, actively recommending it, not gatekeeping people like engaging in exercise due to this sort of risk averse, you know, libel, uh, litigious society that we're, we're in now, particularly in the, in the medical, on the medical side. And then you'd also want trainers to be be comfortable working with the complicated client mm -hmm. the client who has multiple medical comorbidities and not well you've got all these things so we're going to underdose and uh, you know training and you're not going to get any better uh, or the people are actually going to get worse and detrain for a long period of time and then and then what you know in the, in the case of a soldier imagine them coming back from surgery and then they're they haven't done any exercise for 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, you have your ACFT coming up. So now what? It's all the time. <laughs> yeah. But then they have to start training for that. Right. And right. they're like, oh, right, I got three weeks to do this and they overdo it. They get injured again. It's like, well, now you're now what? Yep. So, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, you'd, you'd want to bridge the gap there. And I think, you know, that's really what we're trying to do. Um, I thought when they started this business, this company rather 10 years ago, I was like, man, why is no one doing this? And I thought in the interim, there's going to be people cropping up and doing this thing, you know, we're still the only people doing it. And so like, <laughs> does that mean that the market just isn't there, you know, or like, or that the, the fund of knowledge across both of these categories is so specialized that maybe you just, you can only have a handful of people that kind of do bridge this gap, in which case, fine, I'm happy to do it. But I uh, would, would hope that this is, this gets a little bit more, uh, more traction. What I'm curious, what are and you sort of just touched on this, but like, what are the hurdles? Because to me, it's one of those things where it's like, everyone will objectively acknowledge that healthy lifestyle behaviors, exercise, yada, yada, yada are good for you. But yet we mm -hmm. still see this world. And again, I'll look at the medical model where like you prescribe medication, you, like we know the answer when we're just not doing it. And I think you guys are primed to do it because it literally is barbell medicine. So what, right, are yeah. the, what are the hurdles you guys have seen in kind of making this mainstream type stuff? I mean, if you look at the barriers to engaging in physical activity, most of them are not related to knowledge, right? So, so it's not like you need to tell people that exercise is beneficial because people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we got it. <laughs> we, we got it. Uh, the main thing is making it more accessible. So whether that's having more places to be physically active, uh, reduced cost, uh, you know, certain types of facilities that are accessible to folks um, who either uh, would be like adaptive type athletes or, or other, you know, things of that nature. So across the spectrum, it, though, they're, they're effectively more logistical type barriers than education. So it's either time, access, things of that nature uh, to that ultimately like reflect behaviors. And so like, if you don't have access to a place 
that you can exercise, feel safe exercising or whatever, like you just, you're not, not going to do it. Uh, if you don't feel like you have time, for example, if you have to work two or three jobs and then you've got kids at home and this, that, and the other, like, well, all right, well, there's not protected time to engage in physical activity. And so fixing those things, I mean, that's a, <laughs> well, that's a societal level deal, right? Right. But, right. but the, the interesting thing that relates to your podcast audience in particular is that in the military, you do have protected time, at least theoretically to like do this stuff. You know, you got your PT, it's like bare minimum. And then you have like additional time where you could go to the gym and there are facilities that you have access to or whatever. And it's like, I do wonder, and I have not been able to find any good data on this. What amount of, you know, uh, uh, military personnel actually meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines? Probably way fewer than you think. Well, yeah. yeah. So like at a population level, if you ask people, about half of them will report that they're meeting the aerobic guidelines. So if you just ask them and you say, look, here's what the guidelines say for the aerobic training component, which is about 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity per week. So 20 to 30 minutes a day, something like that. People are like, about half people will be like, yeah, I did it. And if you just strap an accelerator, accelerometer to them, uh, anywhere between five to 10% actually are doing it. But self-reported, about half. And then if you add on to that, the resistance training component, which is at least twice per week of resistance training, that number drops to about a quarter, again, of self-reported like uh, adherence. And so if you combine all of that together, the amount of people gen in the gen pop that are meeting the guidelines, probably about two and a half percent, three percent. And that's probably, that probably overestimates how many people are doing it. And so you'd expect the military to be higher than that, but I don't know how much higher. Is it 20%? Is it 30%? I think it's interesting because I think part of it, it all comes back to behavior change kind of stuff, obviously, but a, a big component of it is that our, our dosing is pretty wild. We have to follow a very one size fits all kind of model. And what that ends up doing is you find some people where like whatever we're dosing them with is not enough for them. And they're like hyped on fitness and you find them in the gym before PT and after PT and after work and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a whole nother population that is the population we should probably be concerned with who kind of get their ass kicked at PT and learn that exercise is a miserable experience where somebody's yelling at them and they have to be up early and it's dark and it's cold and it sucks. And that does not create a world where they're probably going to go seek out extra exercise on their own mm -hmm. short of somebody like forcing them to, which just makes the whole thing even worse. And you're, you're touching on social determinants of health kind of stuff. And I don't think we spend enough time necessarily talking about it. You, I, I'll trigger Drew real bad by talking about like, the nutrition environment on military installations. Oh my, oh my God. God. But, but we like, we focus on the PT thing and we protect that time and we absolutely do, but we don't really set conditions for like health and wellness beyond that terribly well. Sure. Uh, I think there's, I don't, I don't know. This is mostly a rant that I was hoping would end in a question. That's not really ending in a question, but I, I don't know how we have conversations better about like organizations responsibility to create those social conditions for healthy lifestyles. Yeah. I mean, from an access standpoint and from like, you know, to, to, for physical activity, I feel like the military is probably doing the most there, you know? Um, but as far as the, uh, environment, I could imagine there could be, there's a, just like everything else and, uh, related to social determinants of health, there's going to be a wide array of people that, and feelings about, oh yeah, I like this setup. And so I'm, I'm apt to participate and other people will be like, that's very intimidating. I'm not going to do it. Um, and, and, and further, like we know one of the biggest predictors of adherence to physical activity is your self-reported enjoyment of what you're doing. And it's like, okay, well, we know the constraints, we know what you have to be able to do to be fit for duty, at least 
as far as the tests are concerned. Yeah, as far as uh, the test is concerned. <laughs> yeah. And so, but like there are many different roads to Rome there, right? So there are many different ways you can get to that level of service uh, or sorry, of fitness. And, and so you would prefer that each individual, you know, based on their needs and their preferences and everything kind of has their own individualized plan and support structure and everything else to get them to, to do it. And that's just from the physical activity side. And you would want that to dovetail nicely into the food environment so that that you know, uh, uh, gets them to uh, engage in a health promoting dietary pattern so that they can make weight or measurements or whatever, and ultimately have a really fit, robust, you know, military personnel. Uh, but I don't know, I only spent a limited amount of time on base. Like I did a lot of my medical rotations at maybe Portsmouth hospital. That's like one place that I spent some time at. And then we were at, uh, what was it? Fort, uh, what is it? It's in the, it's in the Sierra Nevada desert. It's in California. Irwin. Yeah. We were, Oh Fort God. Irwin. <laughs> yeah, well, so they, I'm they, sorry. They, well, we came down. This is right when the ACFT came out, and they were like really wanted us to talk about low back pain and deadlifts and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Deadlift. Yeah. yeah, and so we went down. There, I was like, "What the heck goes on out here?" And they were like, "Basically, it's war games, right? It's like before you go mm -hmm. off to yeah." And uh, I've, I've done a little bit of time before when a couple trips out there. Uh, wild. It's the whole <laughs> it's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the gym looked great though. I was like, mm -hmm. I mean, I would spend some time here, but yeah, I was like, uh, can we? Can we get like on the range or something? And they're like, we have a goat problem. I'm like, a, a what problem? Like, yeah, we had a goat problem. There's too yeah, many there's donkeys too. And there's like desert tortoises and there's a whole. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I, I thought about, I was like, what, what about a tank? Can we get into a tank? And the guy was like, you absolutely do not want to get into a tank. That's going to be the most uncomfortable experience of your entire life. And I was like, well, it's probably like 110 right. degrees outside. I don't know, man. Yeah. That'd be a cool box to check. I think so. But then, you know, talking to other people who've actually been in tanks, they're like, yeah, it's super small, super rough. There's no suspension. And if yeah, they happen true. to fire around while you're in there, you know, <laughs> and I was sure, like, Maybe that's, it's that's all true, but like, it's still a tank. It's, it's still a sweet. tank though. You're still yeah. That would have been cool to say like two, two truths and a lie. Like I've been in a tank, we fired around. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That would have been cool, but I don't know. I haven't spent enough time to really know. Um, about all the different food environments, but I will tell you when we go in the cafeteria, I was like, how do we eat like a health promoting dietary oh pattern God, here? Don't get me started. And, and this is me like, you know, kind of, I'm like, all right, well I can afford the extra, you know, whatever cost it is to eat something. But I was like, nothing's really available here. And it seems like I would just live off like energy drinks and, you know, <laughs> and maybe some, you would do so and, well in the military. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just drink all the energy drinks, stay up all night. You'll be fine. Like, what's, yeah, exactly. what's the worst that well, so you okay, you touched on something there that is going to lead to a question of mine. And I say this as somebody who has followed Barbell Medicine for a long time. One of the reasons, oh boy. Well, one of the reasons why is because you guys put a really big emphasis on individualization, autoregulation, athlete centric mm -hmm. programming, et cetera. And I would argue that outside of like one on one coaching, there is a, I don't want to use the word industrialized aspect like negatively, but you guys have found the ability to provide a product to really anyone online that tailors to the sort of the individual needs of the athlete. And one of the things that we've kind of gone on and on and on about with H2F specifically, but really with embedded human performance at large in the military is the reason for it at like a general officer level is to quote unquote, like individualize training for the, for the soldier or sailor or whatever, when realistically you know, the coaches that we work with, it's like one coach for 500, a 1, thousand, 1500 soldiers. And so 
we haven't really gotten away from industrialized human performance. And I guess the question I have for you is when you talk about strategies that you guys take to individualized training, to auto-regulate training, <clears throat> aside from just the nitty gritty reps and sets and that sort of stuff, what are some of the things that you hang your hat on? Is it education of the athlete? Is it the way that you structure the training? Is it a combination of all of the above to create an environment that caters to one-on-one aspect while still allowing the masses? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. And I, I feel like we try to come at it from, from all sides, uh, you know, from the, from the actual individual standpoint, you don't need to explain everything. They don't need to become a strength coach to, you know, strength train, for example, and they don't need to become a fitness professional just to improve their fitness. But at the same time, they kind of need to know why they're doing what they're doing. That way there's less sort of meandering the path that they're kind of like, okay, I feel empowered, uh, to, to self-select, for example, different exercises. So in that, in, in that context, we're like, all right, we know that you need to, or we think that you need to do some sort of squat pattern. You need to do some sort of push pattern, right? You need to do some sort of pull pattern and a hinge pattern, right? Uh, and we're working all the major muscle groups of the body multiple times per week in a wide variety of different rep ranges, intensity ranges, et cetera. So we can build this big, robust base of physical fitness. But as far as which exercises you choose, and which specific rep scheme you choose, that stuff is more personal preference, right? So if a person really wants to squat with a bar on their back, we're like, great, we're barbell medicine. We're your folks. Like, <laughs> congr- welcome to the club. Uh, but if a person's like, I'd rather do leg press, we're like, hey, great. Like you're still doing some, that's a type of squat pattern. That's great. You can live a full and complete life without ever squatting with the bar on your back. You know, you're just going to be limited in some, in some places if they don't have a leg press, for example. And in that case, you're going to have to have a plan B. Uh, but them knowing, like, I just need to do some sort of squat pattern and here's like a list or like, uh, uh, or here are some components of those exercises that I need to know so I could pick one that I want to do and will do uh, that kind of empowers them to like be the manager of their own program. And so you do that for all the major movement patterns and you, you know, we just construct these full body workouts where the person gets to choose what exercise do I actually want to do. Uh, and then we also bake in some auto-regulation components. So, all right, we want you to do some. Uh, maximal strength work that's going to be in that sort of three to six rep range. Um, and you're going to leave about two to three reps left in the tank. We're going to do some, you know, uh, 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 higher rep work. And that's going to be in that sort of 12 to 15 rep range and then stuff in the middle. And, and we're going to kind of give you the option to pick which exercises and match with particular rep schemes and particular proximities to failure. And you get to kind of choose based on your preferences and just go to town. And so that just empowers people to take ownership of what they're doing. And, and you can write a program that has these options kind of baked into it. And that's what our, a lot of our spreadsheets our, our templates rather uh, look like. And so that's how we kind of auto-regulate and scale that and distribute it to the masses rather than having like one-on-one interactions with all these folks, which we would like, you know, that allows, there's some benefits to that, right? You get to ask people, what are the obstacles that they're facing? You can kind of troubleshoot on the spot or whatever. But if you're talking about thousands of folks, you, you just don't have the manpower and, or in the case of the military, you know, operation, you got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And so how do you distribute that? So from a program perspective, we do that from a coach, like coach education perspective. Yeah. It, it's more so in that case about expanding their fund of knowledge so that they understand the great flexibility that they actually have here. Uh, because Everybody comes from their own different background, their unique experiences. And so they might think, well, look, the only way to get strong is to do heavy sets of five. And you're like, 
that is a way to get strong. That is true. But there are many different ways you in strategies you can use. And so giving them more tools in the toolbox allows them to kind of suit the other people that they interact with um, um, pretty, pretty regularly. Uh, so we try to do it from both ends. But ultimately, you want people to be able to choose their own adventure, to auto-regulate, and then to also sort of uh, uh, find something that they they enjoy and and ultimately can thrive in, and uh, I think you can do that by increasing options, and, and uh, a little a little bit will go a long way. You don't have to give people a list of yeah, here are fifteen potential exercises you can do. It could just be three or four, and at least then they're kind of selecting uh, rather than saying you have to trap our deadlift, you have to you know bench press or you have to you know do this other thing. And it's like, do you though? Like you, you might at the, for the test. You might want some direct exposure there, but uh, um, there are many different ways that you can kind of achieve this, what I would call a base level of fitness needed to be fit and ready for, for duty. So hopefully, I think that answered your question. No, it did. Cause I'm, I'm like, this is something that's near and dear to my heart because we've talked about this with a number of different guests and with a number of different coaches, this like, I don't know how to keep it succinct, but basically this maybe fear that coaches have of surrendering some of the control to the athlete when it comes to managing oh. training. And then simultaneously this positive feedback loop that exists for, I would say most coaches where they grew up in a system and the system worked for the folks that worked in that system. And they didn't account for anybody who failed to work in that system. Ipso facto, this system's the best who cares about the 10,000 people that it didn't work for. Right. You like a survivorship bias, almost like you yeah. only interface with people who exactly. like thrived. What about the people who fell off? Right. And so I mean, we get people all the time. They're like, oh, I ran your power building program and it, I got weaker. And we're like, no, we, we do expect, you know, some people to be quote unquote non-responders to, you know, any of our given programs. And, and what you need to know about that is that doesn't mean you're a non-responder to all programs, <laughs> just that the dose that we were giving you and the formulation of the program were not well suited to your current levels of fitness, your current needs and, and, or your current preferences. And so how, you know, having a sort of little fund of knowledge about what can we manipulate? What can we tweak? And having that baked into the recommendation um, allows people to kind of identify, you know, what really does work for them. It's kind of like sports, right? It's like you can try a particular sport and be terrible at it terrible, but that doesn't mean you're going to be terrible at all sports. And so what you see in the greatest sporting nations in the world is that they have a high level of sampling at a relatively young age. And you kind of identify like, oh, I actually thrive in field hockey or lacrosse and not football, right? If they have opportunities to, to try these sports on for size. Um, and so we kind of want to do that with exercise programming. Like, look, if you try a program and retrospectively you look back and eh, it didn't really work that well, that doesn't mean that you're just, uh, you know, not working hard enough, you're a moral failure, you're like terrible person, <laughs> whatever. It's just that, well, that particular program didn't, didn't fit your, you know, what you need. And so let's, let's tweak things based on, you know, again, this little bit of knowledge uh, of, uh, and these like fundamental principles. Uh, but yeah, not being married to any particular style is probably the knowledge I would impart on a strength coach. Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, it's just like, I mean, my, again, my preference would be like, yeah, you're going to squat, you're going to bench, you're going to deadlift. I like powerlifting. You should like powerlifting. Uh, but if somebody doesn't, they can get stronger doing other stuff and that's fine too. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I forget drew. What were we, what were we arguing about with that person on the internet? Do you remember 
was it a, like a progression thing or it was, something? Oh man. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. I forgot. I forgot. It just came to my mind. I'll, I'll pull up the, the archive here. We end up in fights a lot. The, oh, the thing at the root of most of the fights we get into tends to be periodization <laughs> and how you define the word periodization and how important you think it is compared to other training variables. Well, we, we, and we do this intentionally, right? Because like what I'm getting at and maybe what I'm trying to chip away and I realize it's an uphill battle and there's this paradigm of strength and conditioning. Cool. But the argument to be made is that because tactical human performance is relatively new, we have a blank canvas within which we can create a new paradigm. And that's kind of what we're setting out to do. And part of that is dismantling this idea that as a coach, I have to retreat to my secret lair and plan out 12 to 12 weeks up to four years of a training cycle. And if you can't do, you know, three by five at 85%, 16 Thursdays from now, you're a bad athlete. I'm still a good coach. Who's next in line? Like that's what I'm trying to get away from. And so Alex bless his heart running the Instagram and just annihilating people about periodization tends to trigger a lot of coaches because we have found that that level of planning creates a security blanket. And if you take that away and you force folks to think critically and adapt to the athlete and heaven forbid, we use enjoyment as like a programming variable or compliance or, I mean, whatever we just, as a, I think as an industry aren't primed to know what to do with that. And so that's, I think one of the things that led to <laughs> what we were fighting about on Instagram the other day. <laughs> yeah. Well, the guy deleted his comment or like his story where he was like, I don't really agree. I, Cause I was talking about progression, right? So, so progression, strictly speaking is just going to be how how you match a given exercise sessions variables to the individual's current level of fitness and performance so that could be weight could be reps could be rest periods really depends on which adaptations you're trying to select for so do you always add weight do you always go up and load do you always add reps or are you trying to do you always decrease rest periods etc so that is progression Periodization, the way that I view it, and the way that kind of, I think it's uh, Stone and 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 Bompa and some of these other you know previous figureheads in the in the space, they're just talking about the manipulation of training variables over time, as a exercise and stress management. And so, does that mean that over the course of a training program, the average intensity goes up, right, and and volume goes down? Just your standard linear periodization? Is it undulating? Is it, you know, whatever you can you can make it whatever you want, but it's not the same thing as progression. So our, our thing is that if you're trying to always, and we think you should always be trying to match the training stimulus to the individual's current level of fitness and performance, that's determining your progression. And, and so, so some weeks you, you may be adding weight. If your performance went up, if your fitness level went up and you're just keeping it matched, right? It's like the Greg Lamond quote, like it never gets easier. You just go faster. And so it should be like the same level of hardness. If you add weight to the bar and it becomes harder, I don't know that you got any stronger. And I don't know that that progression makes any sense. It just means that it's harder. You cause more fatigue. I don't know that you're causing more of an adaptation. It's just harder. That's the only thing I can actually say for me, that doesn't really fit in with periodization because I'm not necessarily trying to make it harder. I'm, I'm just trying to make it work in a way to develop particular adaptations. And, and so if I'm talking about maximal low velocity strength, I know that the reps are going to go down over the course of a, you know, entire training program. I know that the average weight is going to go up, but I don't know that it's going to get harder and harder and harder. It's going to be a different type of hard. So at the beginning, it might, might be more volume, higher proximity to failure. You're, you know, RP seven, RP six, RP eight for most of your sets. And as you get 
closer and closer to the end, maybe it's RP9, RP10, you know, here and there, just to try to like maximize or, or identify what your max level performance is if it's a testing week. But that's a periodization model versus a progression sort of scheme. And so I really think where we've kind of lost the plot is when we talk about progressive overload, people hear the word overload and they're like, it has to be harder. And it's like, it doesn't really have to be harder. It has to be hard enough. And you have to like maintain that level of hardness throughout. If you go into the gym and you underload, you're not going to get the best results. Just like if you go into the gym and you overload, you're not going to get the best results. And so that matching, like how do you do that matching? And that's based on this kind of progressive loading model, which you can use real-time feedback in an exercise, in a workout. So what is, what's the velocity of the barbell? For example, if you, if you have a tool to measure that, how hard does it feel during your warm-up sets? All, you know, and your sort of experience is a better predictor of that than whatever the hell it says on the paper. They just like, oh, 85%. I'm going to load 85%. Like 85% of what? <laughs> if, well, because if the one RM is no longer valid, then what the hell does 85% mean? You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So like uh, I'll give you, I use myself as an example. My best squat that I've ever squatted is 290 kilos, 641 pounds or whatever it is. I cannot squat that today. I'm hoping that in 10 weeks at a meet, I can squat that or maybe a little bit more. But if I was doing only percentage work based off 640, I mean, yeah, all, all of my training would be, you know, mismatched. And so I would not be getting the best results because it is not matched to what I can currently squat today, which is probably closer to 606 or 616. But then that changes day to day. That changes as my adaptations wax and wane or ebb and flow. And that changes based on my response to the program. If my response to the program is through the roof, my adaptation rates through the roof and my performance on a given day is also through the roof. Oh boy, I better load that thing heavy to take advantage. On the other hand, if my performance is down, if I'm not responding well to the program for that particular day or in that particular time space, uh, then I need to temper the load. And that's the progression, right? Which is different than the periodization. The periodization I view is like the master plan and the progression is like, how do you account for that day to day? And the guy, I, I can't remember what he said because he deleted the damn thing, but he was like, I don't know that I agree, blah, blah, blah. You should be able to plan stuff out months in advance, something to that. And I'm like, what? Like you, that's, That means that you could accurately and reliably predict ahead of time. You could predict ahead of time how well someone's going to respond to a program, which you can't do, how quickly they're going to respond, right? So do they gain 10% in strength in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, one week? Okay. And further, the, what their day-to-day performance is going to be on average. The idea that that stays static, I mean, that's not based in any sort of research. We know that people will go up and down like a sinusoidal wave, right? They'll have days, oh man, I'm feeling it. Days, I'm not feeling it. And it's like, so you have three variables going on at once. So how the hell are you going to predict stuff in advance? Mm-hmm. The only thing I can predict is unpredictability. And so having tools baked into the program that allows somebody to match that training stimulus allows me to feel confident that the progression is going to be there or at least, uh, uh, you know, suit well suited to where they're currently at. And that should fit in my periodization model overall, whether I'm using linear periodization, undulating periodization, you know, block conjugate periodization, whatever. <laughs> conjugate uh, undulating. Wait, so, okay. This is actually, this is an aside, but this is funny. So People will talk talk about conjugate training versus conjugate periodization, right? So conjugate periodization, conjugate periodization is really just block training, which is cool. So you focus on like one thing for a particular block, it's hypertrophy, it's strength, it's conditioning, it's whatever. And then you move on to the next one. So after hypertrophy, you move to strength. After strength, you move to power. And the idea is that your the elements of the training program are really, really trying to hammer those 
you know, the selected adaptations while without really decaying any of the ones you built in the previous blocks. Your that's residuals. Like, correct. Yeah. So that's like the nuts and bolts of conjugate periodization. Conjugate training, on the other hand, is concurrent. Concurrent training, meaning you're doing hypertrophy work. So that's their repetition efforts. You're doing uh, ma you know, uh, maximum strength work. So your heavy singles and you're doing high velocity work, dyna your dynamic effort. So you're doing all of these things at once rather than breaking them up. So conjugate training is not the same thing as conjugate periodization. And so, uh, if you look at it, conjugate training is really more of like a daily undulating periodization. And so you're like, oh yeah. So West side is really just DUP. And they're like, no, 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 it can't be. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, a lot of these stuff are just a lot of these things are just made up definitions, right? Like nobody's really agreed upon them, but uh, yeah, I, the 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 idea, like, what do you think of conjugate? I'm like, well, you talk about periodization or training, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and so it's yeah, I don't know. I that guy, he was wearing a West Side shirt, and so I assumed that he just meant like whatever that he just was very in that camp, which is fine. <laughs> Daily undulating periodization, West Side, all that stuff can work, but it's like let's not misconstrue what i was saying about progression i remember what it was okay yeah because you you guys posted a soundbite and alex if you've pulled it up interrupt me but you guys had posted a soundbite about adaptation and how in a population you'll have sort of the bell curve etc cetera, etc cetera. and then i think alex he had said something about you can't i, I don't jump in for me I, I don't want to characterize this post because it's been deleted. I can't see it. But what the conversation I recall having with him afterwards was so like you had the soundbite about different people responding differently to the same kind of programming. Yes. Um, he his general response was that like that must be a coaching issue. Like if it was better coached, people would respond the same way to the same stuff. And hmm. and so what I referred him to was like mostly stuff that like you guys have shared before. But like there's there's a tremendous amount of literature that for any given person, you're going to have swings in like if we look just at their one rep max on a given day, you can see swings of like up to 20% day to day. Mm -hmm. And to like compound that, if we're looking at a large population of people, how do they respond to training? You will see swings of like multiple standard deviations above and below the mean from the same program. And it, it kind of comes back to like stuff Drew was saying earlier of like, if you, depending on the background you come from, you may have trained a bunch of athletes who, because they succeeded in the system they're in, are probably genetically pretty similar or biomechanically pretty similar. So the same kinds of things are going to work for them and you can get some kind of predictable outcome. But as soon as you move into like a gen pop environment and frankly, tactical looks a lot like gen pop, mm -hmm. you have to recognize that you have people that are like extremely genetically different from each other. You have people whose lifestyles are extremely different. They're going to be more and less recovered on different days. You have really wide ranging, just like aptitudes for this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think it, it'd be great. And like, I I'm reading how minds change right now. And like the general takeaway oh of the book is that facts don't change people's opinion. It actually hardens their opinion. Yes. Like once in a while, I end up having a good conversation with somebody where like, like you, you can go back and forth and like provide evidence and people are actually receptive to it. And that's exciting. So I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not mad that he decided to take it down. I just don't want to keep slamming no. the same conversation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, it's just the, the whole, the whole idea is that, you know, you, you can find, you can identify the average response to a given training program but people are not averages that you know you're gonna have a range mm -hmm. and so when you look at actual studies where they have individually reported data you have uh you know evidence where people will lose strength on a strength program a, a long one even going over six months people will lose 10 11 12 percent of strength and other people will gain you know 50 percent, 60 percent strength and you're like hmm so you get that's the range 
And so if you just reported an average, oh yeah, average improvement was 25% in strength. And you're like, yeah, that's the average response. It's like, yeah, well, people are not the mean, you know, they're not the median, the median average, uh, the median, median value. Um, this, this actually, this is a really interesting study. Uh, they took, they look at, at Olympic weightlifters who are competing at the international level, getting ready for the Olympics in Sydney, uh, in 2000. And they looked at their, uh, performance in at least three meets, uh, over 18 months leading up to that competition. So you got to expect that these people are the best of the best. They're training their faces off, right? And they're highly motivated to do the best because the better they qualify, the more likely they are to be in the A final, uh, to be seated well. It's all these other sorts of things, right? They have very wide ranges of performance on their best clean and jerk and snatch in those competitions. And you're like, wait, these are the best of the best. And they're all, you know, some at least somewhat genetically similar, right? High, high prevalence of fast twitch muscle fibers, genetically predisposed to being savages on the platform. And, and you're looking at, you know, three to 5% variance in their clean and jerk and their snatch performance at every meet up or down. And the ranges get even higher as you include people in the bottom half. So we're just in a top half, it's 5%, but in the bottom half, you're talking 10%, 15%. And that's at the highest level. If you expanded that out to you know, the gen pop, what does that performance variation look like? And, th and that's just, again, at a competition, what does that look like in training all over the place? Uh, so yeah, I, I just, this, this idea that you could predict how people are going to do at each training session. I mean, it, to me, it's not a coaching problem. It, it, it doesn't mean that the program is bad. It, it really just represents a biological problem. Like people are going to have good days and bad days. And we see that across all other fields. And so why would it not be present in human and physical performance? It'd be weird if it, if it wasn't here, right? I think there's a parallel with medical stuff there too, though, right? Because like a medication doesn't have to work for 100% of people to be a useful tool in your toolbox or a, like a treatment doesn't have to work on 100% of people for it to be relevant. If it works yeah. for only 20% of the people, cool. I now just have to figure out who those 20% are and I have a tool that's relevant for them. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have like the, the, the benefit needs to be present for X amount of the population compared to the side effects they may face, the risks they may face. And then, you know, effectively you're just gauging treatment response. So, oh yeah, well, this medication should have done X, Y, and or Z, but it didn't. Okay. So we, then we got to move on to the second line medication or a combination of medications or other sort of interventions, not just like, well, the medicate, the, there's a problem that we need to fix with the individual. It's like, no, you just change the medication. I mean, <laughs> hey man, you're not trying hard enough with this antihypertensive. You're not you're not trying hard enough. It's like I don't know, man. Your it's, fault. The, it's just not you. Well, I mean that happens. That happens. You put people on a program, they don't respond well to it. You're not doing the program. It's like I think it happens. What if the program just doesn't work? Why? So I guess this is like a question just for anyone, but like why? I don't know. Why is it that that is not what is normally taught in strength and conditioning? Like people are coming into this industry with the idea that like you're dealing with a, I mean, it's, it is a, it is not a, a biopsychosocial model. It is. Yeah, yeah. It is a mechanistic. The Soviets did it this way. We're doing it this way. X equals Y. Like, and then you come across like you guys' work, people like you guys, Mike Tashir comes to mind, John Kiley, who we had on here, like guys that are doing, having the chat about like, Hey, people vary in their responses. And that's like mind blowing for people or it triggers them and they send Alex messages in Instagram and they're pissed off. I just don't know why that is. <laughs> It'd be cool if humans were robots and we just reliably knew what input was going to generate what output. 
we have some fundamental principles, uh, you know, related to programming variables. So, for example, we we think that the more specific the exercise is uh, to the test, the better it's going to transfer to it. We suspect that the more volume of the exercise that you can tolerate and do, that the more uh, robust the response is going to be. Uh, so we have a handful of like these fundamental principles, right? But as far as how that interacts with the individual, well, we have to take into consideration their own unique response. And so the way we characterize it is that the nuts and bolts of the training program are, is the external load. So the exercise selection, the rest periods, the rep schemes, the proximity to failure, all that stuff is the external load. That's the training stimulus. And that gets applied to the individual and filtered through all of the unique factors that make them a unique individual. And you can measure their response using things like RPE, so the rate of perceived exertion, reps in reserve, barbell velocity, heart rate, all of these uh, 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 measurements of what we call internal load. That's the training stress. So you could apply the same program on paper to different individuals, and they're going to get a different experienced response. And you can measure that based on, oh, how hard was this thing? What was the RPE? What was the, how many reps in reserve did you have? What amount of barbell velocity uh, decrease did you see? What did your heart rate do? you know, in the middle of the set in response to the set or the conditioning effort or whatever. Uh, and then ultimately what determines the fitness adaptations generated and the amount of fatigue generated is the internal load that that's measured that stress. And so if you ignore that individual response to the training stimulus, then it looks like training stimulus drives fitness adaptations and fatigue, but you're missing that messy middle. And that messy middle is what we're focused on. Like, how do we uh, not only identify uh, how people respond to the training stimulus, but the differences between individuals, like how do we modify the training so that we can better tailor it to them? And, and I mean, that's what we're trying to do here. That's what you guys are trying to do. Ideally, that's what all strength coaches are trying to do. Or, or And if you transfer this to medicine, you're like, all right, well, we know if we give you this medication or if we do this intervention or whatever, this should be the expected response. And sometimes it doesn't happen. You're like, all right, well, why? And that's based on the individual. So let's like address the individual factors uh, rather than just tell them, ah, well, you're a piece of junk and you know, you got to just try harder. You got to want it more. You got to this, that, and the other. And it's like, is that really where we're going with this? I, I don't know. So yeah, I, I asked the guy and I don't want to you know, keep harping on this. It's probably the last thing I'll say about it. I asked him like, what do you mean? And he never responded to me. <laughs> and he deleted the thing. And I was like, all right. I mean, I was up for a conversation. I was just more curious, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's like and I, I did have a little back and forth with him. I know him a little bit. So I'll, I'll ask, I don't know if he listens to the podcast. I have no idea, but if he does, and if you're listening right now, like get in the DMS, man, like hop in there and have that conversation. Slide in my DMS, man. I'm just, you know, if, if you got, if you program somebody five by five at 70% and you expect X response and somebody doesn't get that response, what do you do then? You just say, well, no, keep doing it. And if you're saying, oh, no, you should modify that to suit the individual. I'm like, well, yes, I agree then. So what are we arguing about here? You know what I'm saying? I just can't. I, I think that's where a lot of it, I think a huge number of the debates in this field are like largely semantics because some terms are poorly defined and people are like very attached to certain approaches to concepts and things like that. And that's, that's not necessarily bad. Like people get passionate about what they do. And I think semantics are annoying. And, well, but I genuinely, I agree with you, but I genuinely do think that for a lot of people in this space, if the program fails, they look at the athlete as the reason why versus having the toolbox to say, hey, maybe we do something different. I just don't yeah. see that happening as frequently as you would want it to. 
Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is if, if the athlete's failing, right, that gives me very few options to like tweak, fix, and otherwise, you know, elicit the response I'm looking for. Then I just, I just like grimace at them or, or like tell <laughs> them the to music try harder. up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. More, yeah. More, more ammonia. Like, what's the deal? Or, or, or if I view it the other way where it's like, oh, well, the program just wasn't, you know, well suited to what you currently need and are currently uh, uh, going to respond to, then I have almost infinite sort of options. I can adjust the volume. I can adjust the average intensity. I can adjust the proximity to failure, the exercise selection, the recipe. I have so many options. Um, and that just, it's just a, a bunch of tools that I can use to get what I want, which is you to be stronger, have better cardiorespiratory fitness, you know, all, whatever. Um, this, this last, this is probably maybe the last study I bring up just, but I, I like this study. This is great. They, they took, on. yeah, it was 40 resistance training studies where strength was repeatedly measured throughout the duration of the study. So it wasn't just measured at the beginning and at the end, they measured it also at least one time point in the middle. So 40 resistance training studies. A lot of these were using at least squat and bench press. Some of them were squat, bench press, and deadlift on average. At what time point? do you think the first strength increase was actually identified? So how many weeks into the program do you think on average, the first strength increase was demonstrated? Are they trained or untrained individuals? Uh, so about two thirds of these studies were in untrained individuals and one third were in elite athletes. But on average, I guess how was the go 12 weeks? I'm thinking know, really, really early. I know that's high. Yeah. The, the average amount of time that they tested was every three weeks. So what was the first on average, demonstrable increase in strength. Fourth exposure. I'm, I'm willing to go extremely early if a lot of them were untrained let's, people. Let's cage. Yeah. Let's go. For yeah. That. All right. <laughs> so so the, the average time point for the first strength increase to show up was about four and a half weeks. And that the range that they saw was between one and 12 weeks. And it's, it's like huge, very huge variance. Right. Mm -hmm. And the amount of strength change ranged between 3% improvement to 40% improvement. And you're like, well, yeah, because individuals are going to individual. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah. That's what humans do. If and somebody's so never it, squatted before and you like show them a few things, you're going to see a dramatic improvement in that session. Right. Like there's, yeah, but like some, yeah, yeah. Like, likely, likely. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, so, some people you show them some stuff and they, you know, man, it doesn't really fit my lovers or my, you know, ability or my style or this that, and the other, and they might get a little worse. And it's like, well, people, you know, are, 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 are just wild like that. There are biological, psychological, social, environmental inputs into performance. And so the idea that it, it's going to happen and this, like a metronome, boom, every week, every week, every week, every week, it's like, damn, when else does that happen? You know, it, it, think about an education right? You're learning yeah. cursive, you're learning your times tables, you're learning whatever. It's like, does this reliably happen every day? You get an improvement every week, every month. It's like, no, you're going to have some people pick it up like that. And other people are like, eh, we need a little bit of remediation. And so the teacher, you know, re real, really at the education system probably mirrors your guys's, you know, mm -hmm. system, because it's like, yeah, you have to distribute this plan or I, you know, program to ma the masses for and it, it for some folks they're gonna it's gonna work really well and really quickly and other folks not so well not so quickly and it's like man how do you catch all the people in the middle or the people who aren't really responding you gotta you have to have some adjustability baked in and that may not be part of the thought process right now which is which is tough well some of this comes back to something like a conversation i've been kicking around with other people in kind of the 
the DOD space and like working with the recruiting problems and things like that. And it's something that's kind of at the heart of the barbell medicine thing. But I think there's a real conversation to be had around like, should strength and conditioning professionals see themselves as public health professionals and like that, that broader responsibility of like, you are not just here to like rigidly apply these frameworks. You, you have, like you are dealing with humans. You are dealing with Mm -hmm. a lifestyle factor that influences their health, their fitness, their wellness, their mental health, all of it, like coming at it from the approach of, I am a public health professional kind of changes it to like, you you can no longer blame the athlete slash now patient. If they are non-responding to your initial thing, you have to think through like, what can I provide this person that will work better? I don't know if that's a useful framework or a dangerous idea. I don't know, but the conversation's come up a couple of times now. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of coaches and personal trainers being viewed as part of the public health you know, uh, the communicators, the de- deliverers of public health information. I mean, you're in the trenches, you're working with people one-on-one, you're like the final, uh, you're the final boss. Like, how do you, how do you, <laughs> uh, and, and, and so at that point, it's like, how do you, you know, how do you, um, train people for that profession so that they can do the best job possible? And I think if you, just as you said, if you reworked it from like, I'm a strength conditioning professional, I'm a performance coach, I'm a whatever, to I'm a public health professional, and I'm trying to improve the health and performance of these individuals, then you have a sort of greater, not only responsibility, but also uh, a, a greater sort of range of acceptable outcomes. Because it's not just like, did their one RM squat improve? Like, yeah, if you're tra- if you're coaching a bunch of powerlifters, like that's going to be a focus. But, you know, there are other ways to make people healthier uh, and improve performance metrics that we know correlate well to health, like strength, like power production, like lean body mass, like cardiorespiratory fitness without ever touching their one arm squat. If somebody's able to go from a half body weight leg press to 1.5 times body weight leg press, well, they got stronger. And we know that that is correlated with the a, a reduction in premature mortality, for example. Uh, so yeah, I think if you if you kind of rebranded the strength conditioning profession as like a public health like exercise professional, you probably could see some improvement there because then people would have uh, again a wider array of tools and outcomes that they would be s- searching for or trying to um, elicit rather than just like did your squat go up, did your mile time decrease, and, and I don't want to you know. If, if you're a strength conditioning professional and you're listening to this, you're like, well, of course, I'm not just, <laughs> I'm not just looking at performance metrics. I'm like, great, you're already doing the thing. That's great, cool. We're not, you know, we're not talking at you. You should be just nodding your head. You know, that's great. Um, like but, follow, but, subscribe. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Smash that like button. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're good here. But but unfortunately, what I see is is just a, as as you mentioned earlier, it's like whatever system you were brought up in, whatever type of training that you prefer, people just kind of get stuck inside that rigid box. And it's like, man, there's so many different other things that you could target that would improve somebody's quality of life, their health trajectory that would compress morbidity, um, all sorts of stuff. And then uh, even from a performance standpoint, bringing up areas that are undertrained, underdeveloped may have some sort of black in a black box kind of way, it might improve their performance. So for the power lifter who has, you know, a cardiorespiratory fitness score of zero, uh, and they're like, I don't need to do no stinking cardio. I just need to squat heavy. And it's like, well, you do need to squat heavy. That is true. But your ability to tolerate the training volume necessary to drive the adaptations that you want is going to require some level of cardiorespiratory fitness to not only 
maintain performance and work capacity throughout a session, but also to recover from that session. So shoring up those sort of gaps that you may have uh, doing stuff that you know may not directly apply to your sport is likely going to be beneficial. And so if you're a public health strength and conditioning coach, we probably need a better as- name for it. Yeah, we we do we could workshop this a little bit, brand it <laughs> differently. I mean, you want to just be like a barbell medicine coach? Like, what are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah now there's gyms and He's hospitals. He's fun that one pretty well. There's hospitals and gyms. Yeah, I mean, that was that. my. I got interviewed for uh, uh, Medscape, which is like this. I don't know how to. I thought you said it's, it's Netscape like a, it, at first, and I was ne- like, "Yeah, you remember yeah. Netscape?" <laughs> no, uh, Meds Medscape was like this. Uh, it's like a subscription based physician mm-hmm. hub. Of information, like new study comes out, they put it up there. New like opinion piece comes out, they put it up there. They interviewed me. They were like, "Oh, this gym clinic model. Like, what do you, you know, what's that idea about?" That was my original idea for barbell medicine. I basically had a clinic up front, gym in the back. The idea would be like, "Yeah, we're doing all of the primary care stuff. We're screening you. We're testing you. We're we're treating all uh, all the stuff that we need to treat with modern medicine. But then also, we're going to put a heavy emphasis on lifestyle and stuff. And so, how do we make sure that that happens? Well, we're going to send you down the hall to the gym in the back." And mm-hmm. ideally, that would be the medical model that we have in this country. Uh, that's not what we have right now, outside of like a few boutique like locations. But that would be cool. And then you would have your public health strength and conditioning professional. I mean, I I could see the NSCA coming up with another if they got TSAC. I mean, they might have like was it? I love a search. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like public health SAC, whatever. PH something. I don't know, man. I, I just, I, 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 the gyms that I go to, there are not a lot of coaches in these gyms. They're mostly just filled with athletes that are just training and, and whatever. Um, uh, but when I've been to different gyms that have trainers, particularly like commercial gyms, I'm like, what is going on here in this, mm-hmm. with these trainers? And I'm like, I guess if I'm being charitable, they're helping these folks meet the physical activity guidelines from a resistance training component. And maybe they're giving them homework to meet the physical activity guidelines from an aerobic training standpoint but like there's 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 just like it's a lot of work and a lot of like making people sweaty and mm-hmm. not a lot of like what look appears to be like well thought out here's what we're doing today here are the goals for the day's training session and like here's how we're going to work this over time and it's like man how did how did we get here i don't know and i Instagram. i don't know that does that happen in the maybe instagram does that happen in the military i mean you guys see you guys probably don't see that as much because in order to get access to soldiers or, or or sailors or whatever you have to be certified and you probably have to submit a plan right oh, like, oh, well, we're let's be careful way. let's be careful because well while we are rolling out programs to bring professionals into the space the vast majority of the military the vast majority of the conventional military does not have any kind of professionals involved in their physical training oh and so it it is not abnormal like when i was a platoon leader like the the standard way things were right is that on like each day of the week, a different non-commissioned officer who has no certifications whatsoever is going to be charged of that day's training. Why? And just, that's just <laughs> what it, that's question. just like, it's a, it is a fantastic question, but like the normal way it is done is like, once you pin Sergeant, you are instantly bestowed the responsibility of overseeing the physical fitness training of your subordinates. And it, it rarely is the case that the same sergeant is responsible for like multiple days in a row or multiple weeks in a row of training. It tends to be a constant churn of, and it is, it is not uncommon for that person to find out they're in charge of that day's training that day, like 20 minutes before it's go time. 
I mean, I guess that would be great if you or I were, you know, happen to be in that <laughs> group and we got selected, you know, but I'll hazard a guess here. And Alex, you've been in the military, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception of it as an objective outsider for my whole career is that the military is very much still in World War II in which people came into the service with a base level of fitness slash understanding of health slash, hey, we're going to run 10 miles off that mountain. Okay, cool. We can all do that. And from what I have seen, the whole people first thing is great, but there hasn't been a ton in terms of like educating your average NCO, your average sergeant to like not only run a session, but like run a, run a single session within the context of like all the sessions. And so Monday might be, you know, Sergeant such and such loves CrossFit. So we're going to do, you know, high intensity interval stuff. Wednesday might be, oh, well, Captain so-and-so ran cross country in high school. So we're going running. And then Friday, hey, the division commander has designated that every Friday is a long ruck, no matter what happened in all the preceding days. So that's what's going to happen on Friday. And so rinse and repeat throughout the life cycle of your average soldier. And now we see injuries. Now we see burnout. Now we see X, Y, Z. So, and, and we do to lay a little groundwork. Like I think, I hope that average, doesn't get me in trouble. <laughs> the average amount of weight gained after somebody separates from the army is like 30 to 40 pounds over the first year or two after separation. And we're oh, talking boy. like averages there. It is astonishing. Yeah. I think there is a yeah. real issue in terms of we, we teach people because of going through that system that exercise is something that wears you down and gradually makes you more disabled and it is miserable and it has to suck to be effective. Mm. And that, that leaves them going out into the world where they suddenly have like the freedom to make their own lifestyle choices. They're like, man, I'm so glad I'm done with exercise. That sucks. Yeah, yeah. Or they create an Instagram page with like tactical workout. Video. <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. When I see throw that out there. <laughs> okay. Hold on. So this, this would be like a Kylie type question. Oh, All right. John, John Kylie type question. That's right. Yeah. Like we love this guy. Um, do we agree that having some sort of plan with some constraints would work better than this sort of random randomized type approach? It's yes. A hundred percent. And the military generally hinges around planning. Like that is what the military does is plans and executes complex operations. So you would think they would apply it. Well, we talked about this with the guys from the study on force blades where to the military, everyone is a Humvee. Everyone is an aircraft. Everyone's a Humvee, red, yellow, green, check the box. Maintenance is good. Okay. You're deployable. But what we're confronting now is this biopsychosocial holistic health and fitness, yada, 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 insert whatever buzzword model where you have to account for the individual. And unfortunately Humvees don't have angry spouses and financial issues, and they don't have a drinking problem. And the military is very good at ordering parts at the right time, but it's very it's not very good at saying, Hey, maybe we should take it easy today because you know, so-and-so had a hell of a night or whatever. I'll get off the soapbox now, but that's where we're at. (laughs) That is interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. I I would be, I would be agreeable that having some sort of plan and constraints like would, would be beneficial overall, particularly from generating Mm -hmm. misadaptations and, you know, reducing risk, uh, injury risk and this and the other, it just seems so wild to me that the, you know, you have the resources, but then the, the strategy would be like, eh, we'll just, we'll wing it each time. We'll wing it and not only wing it within like a platoon, but like just across all platoons, we'll have some platoons that are really, really endurance based, you know, whatever others that are really CrossFit based then things in between. And it's like, and yeah, that's probably fine. 
and, and and maybe it is. Uh, we don't we don't exactly we don't well we don't exactly know because what you would want to see is like all right here's the way we've been doing it right just keep keep doing that thing but we're gonna have this like these test cohorts where we do this sort of planned progression this, you know over our overarching plan is you know, based on some periodization principles and it's auto regulated individualized on a particular basis and let's just see how these folks do and that would be really really interesting to see uh, I would suspect or my expectation would be that those people would do better. You'd have a reduced injury risk. You'd have better markers of fitness and performance and that they would eventually, you know, be able to better deal with the, you know, whatever they face during deployment, uh, whatever variations are seen in their day-to-day life, you'd have less burnout, all sorts of like beneficial things. But, uh, and so what we'd want to then reject the null hypothesis we'd want to reject is that, yeah, there's no difference. And so why do we need to dedicate resources to this additional mm-hmm. level of planning and strategizing? And I'm like, so, so I'd like to see that. And so if you guys can facilitate that, that'd be great. I'll sign on. We can do this thing for free. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's ultimately where we're, where we're coming at this from, right? Is like, yeah. why, why, we, we have a hunch that having a plan in place that is adaptable and individualizable at scale, and you can scale those things. We know how to do it. Uh, we think that would be better, but we're not doing it yet. And as far yeah. as why we're not doing it yet, I'd love that. I can't speak to, but. And we are starting to do it. Well, you'd have to take complete ownership of PT away from anybody in uniform. And that is very hard, I think. Mm. Sure. It's just my assumption because I'm with you. It's all too easy to like set that up and run it and the results would speak for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. What if, but what if, what if we found that there was no difference? <laughs> You'd be out of a job. Well, I mean, that'd be an interesting <laughs> finding. It would be an interesting finding. You just have to ask better questions. So why is it not, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Did the, was the program not as individualizable as we'd want it to be, or mm. did the way we individualize it not really, you know, meet people where they're at? You know, whatever we'd find out more stuff. There'd be more questions at the end. But you'd, yeah, you start to kind of find some answer, some signal that would be, you know, good for improving what we're currently doing. If if mm. we're in agreement that what we're doing now isn't the best way, which I think it'd be hard to say that it is. So, and so I'm going to, this is going to be like a weird journey that will end with me trying to put you on a soapbox where you can rant about <laughs> something that I know you enjoy, but right. this, this starts with the like attachment to the way we've always been doing things and like resistance to change and things like that. And this, this ties back to something you said really early in the episode about like getting brought out to Fort Irwin because of like their fear of back injuries associated with the deadlift coming out. Mm-hmm. And some, some people have pointed out that it's kind of strange that we we implemented a new test before we implemented the program that shows people how to train in a more logical way. Mm-hmm. And, and I shared that opinion initially until it was like pointed out to me by one of the senior leaders who was involved in making that decision that the force would have no reason to care about modernizing the way they train until a test showed them that what they've been doing is not working particularly well. And in the, in the early days of the rollout of the ACFT, there was fear that like deadlift is just going to break everyone. It's this terrifying, horrifically risky thing. And everybody's going to get really, really injured. And that, that fear seems to have mostly dissipated because there was no like massive wave of injuries that we were expecting. And people were happy ignoring the huge burden of overuse injuries that the army has been tolerating for decades. Like almost all of our injuries are lower body musculoskeletal overuse injuries. Many of them attributable to like poor running programming and things like that. Um, I, I wonder, like, since you're like 
exposure to tactical at first was around like fear of deadlifting. Like what was the conversation you had with those folks to like, kind of reduce that? Like, I don't, I don't know if we want to lump it into kinesiophobia, but just like they had this idea that resistance training is dangerous. How do we teach a whole culture how to approach it? And the fact that like what they've been doing is kind of dangerous. It's just less, like it's less easy. It's harder to picture the danger of like poorly programmed calisthenics and running than it is to picture the danger of hurting your back during a deadlift. I don't know. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, we, we brought that up directly, you know, where it's like, you can, you, you look at how people are learning that the social learning component and people are on social media, uh, you know, they're on Instagram, they're on YouTube or whatever. They see people, the, the thumbnail is a person deadlifting with a lumbar in lumbar flexion and then like a mushroom cloud over their back. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you, you may like take that in through your eyeballs and your, uh, your visual cortex integrates it into a sort of idea. And then you're like, ah, that doesn't affect me at all. But somewhere deep down, it does affect, you know, how you perceive these things. And you're like, oh, that may be a little bit riskier. And it seems like mechanically, you know, if I just think about it logically, it seems like it'd be inherently risky compared to something like uh, running or pushups or even sit-ups. I mean, and, and, Okay, well, sit-ups we've been doing for a long period of time. There's no additional external load. It's just my body, and uh, so that's all got to be safer. And so the the way that we kind of addressed this was that you have these preconceived notions on what is risky and what is not, and then we we went through kind of the existing data on injury risk from exercise, and that it is very very low, not only co- compared to other non-contact sports. So if you compare it to things like cross-country skiing, for example, uh, or volleyball or whatever, and you look at the injury risk and the injury risk of resistance, competitive resistance training outlets. So bodybuilding, powerlifting, you know, CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, et cetera. The injury risk is somewhere in that two to four injuries per thousand participation hours. And people are like two to four per thousand participation hours. If I work out, okay, how many hours per week? Oh man, that means like once or twice a year, I might have an owie. Isn't that a lot? It's like, well, let's compare that to other activities like cycling or walking. And those are somewhere in the low one to two range. And it's like, yeah, just from walking, you may have, you know, some uh, develop some sort of injury. And in fact, when you compare people who are put on an exercise program where they're doing close to six hours of conditioning per week, you compare their injury rates to people who are sedentary, who are not exercising, they have the exact same injury rate. And it's like, look, part of the human condition is being injured. And so if we're looking at just resistance training, is this like a huge, you know, increased risk of musculoskeletal injury? It does not appear to be that right now. So that's, that's just what the data says, but that that might not necessarily get you over that, that fear, that hump. Uh, so then we go into like, how can we introduce people to exercise in a safe, well-tolerated, and then also like self-selected manner. And we talk about what type of exercise would we like people to do? Well, we want you to meet the physical activity guidelines. It doesn't mean you have to start there, but we want you to get there based on exercise that you want to do, that you can do, right? And that you have access to. And so effectively, we're building this sort of idea that people can start from literally nothing and generate enough competency and enough resiliency uh, and enough, uh, and they possess enough adaptability that they can tolerate just about anything. Certainly a stinking trap bar deadlift. Uh, And, and, and I ultimately the feedback we were getting is that people felt kind of empowered and a little bit fired up. Like I can't, I can do this, which is the idea that you'd want people to have. Uh, And then the last 
part that we kind of covered was like, look, even if the worst thing in the world happens and we, we ask people, what is the worst thing that could happen? They're like, I herniate a disc. I, I have a disc herniation. It, you know, shoots across the room while I'm doing my ACFT test, you know, splatters against the wall. I herniate a disc. Even if that were to happen, your sort of trajectory is that it's going to resolve on its own in time. And the worse the herniation is, the more likely it is to resolve on its own without you doing anything. And then you're back to full activity uh, shortly thereafter, just like if you had a running overuse injury or just like you had something else that happened in the field. And so addressing it from multiple levels based on like, all right, what is the actual risk? So tempering those things, uh, identifying why people have the current beliefs that they have, they, they do have, and then just sort of expectation management. What's the worst that could happen? And then, and then what do you do? All of those things, I felt like we left Fort Irwin uh, with those folks being empowered and sort of, and certainly informed about what their, you know, this training is going to look like. And, and it, it, the interesting thing is, like you said, there has not been this huge increased signal in low back injuries, uh, even with lack of preparation for this test, which kind of speaks to the resiliency of humans. It's like, isn't it crazy that you can make hundreds of thousands of people do the trap bar deadlift or tens of thousands of people do the trap bar deadlift without ever having done it before? And you don't see this huge sort of injury spike. It, it would, you wouldn't expect that. You mm -hmm. wouldn't expect that net, you know, normally, but uh, yeah, we can. I think what your superiors or former superiors are going to see is that if you were, uh, if you allowed people to train in a progressively loaded manner to prepare for these tests, that the existing injury risk uh, that we have now, which is relatively low, would go down even further. People's performances would go up and you'd see a bunch of um, positive externalities, uh, meaning that you'd see less injuries from other things unrelated to the test. You'd see uh, an improvement in uh, health-related Sp uh, other health condition related spending, people's blood pressure would go down, their blood glucose management would, would uh, go down, mental health, just, you know, uh, uh, access to care uh, would be less needed because, again, there's benefit of exercise on all of those things uh, and more. And so how, how do you sell somebody on that without the, like, like you said, this, the, the test being done beforehand? I don't know. You just keep knocking on the door until somebody says, hey, you guys should do this thing so we can see if you're right. And that'd be a great opportunity. But we'll, uh, We'll see if that ever comes to fruition, you know? Well, luckily we've got some, we've got some senior leaders who are like willing to bet on that. Basically like the, the fact that Drew and I have jobs says that there, no one there has been an investment in this kind of initiative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think, do you think they're going to fund you like to do a study, like a real, like a real study or, or. So first off studies are happening constantly. Um, we're, we're not the guys that run the studies, but like the army and the DOD employ a, a huge number of research professionals, including a huge number of physiologists. I don't know if they know what questions they want to ask though. No, but, but they are like, yeah, there's a whole conversation and we have, we have had DOD researchers on this podcast before, and we will again in the future. So we can have a conversation about asking the right questions, but there, there are real efforts going on surrounding that. And there, there is data being collected to monitor whether the programs being put in place turn out to be effective or not. And Cool. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I anxiously await. <laughs> so do we. Yeah. Yeah. I think a piece of it though, is it, it sounds really clean to say like, Hey, like this battalion here is going to do this model training and this battalion isn't, and then we're going to compare them. 
And then you get into like the outrageous number of factors that are going to get in the way of a direct comparison. Like mm-hmm. this, the battalion that was training the way we wanted to, they deployed to Bosnia. And the battalion that like wasn't training the way, well, they live in a climate where they have this and they have access to a gym that this battalion doesn't. And like the amount of turnover in those two units during that period and how well staffed were the people that were implementing the intervention. And it like, if there's one thing I've said this before, like Drew and I talk about like, what is the paradigm of tactical strength and conditioning? If, if I had to identify one thing that is at the root of what tactical is, it's chaos. And that is both mm. chaos in that it is very hard to predict what their quote unquote sport will look like because every, every incident of combat looks different. Right. And that's what we're theoretically preparing them for, but also just chaos in the day-to-day execution of it. Like, can you expect the same 12 people to show up every time you want to train that squad? Probably not. One guy's gone doing this another guy's doing that, whatever. Like there's just, there's so little predictability in both what you're training for and the conditions you're training under that it becomes very difficult. A whole nother layer requiring some auto regulation. That's what you're saying. That's exactly. I agree. I agree. Exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I think success will be a marrying of, to your point, more of, well, a better understanding of auto regulation around training, individuality around training from one end. And then from the other end, from like the military end, maybe some of the chaos is self imposed and self inflicted. And maybe it does not have to be this way so i think what right looks like and i this gets back around to the the question about research and a study to figure this out i think it it is going to depend on finding that one cohort that's willing to say we're we want to look at making a change from a couple of different angles not just hey you're doing trap bar deadlifts now instead of ruck marches are you a better soldier i don't know but like that that's a level of complexity that i think freaks a lot of people out that's why we have statisticians yeah and, exactly you know, data scientists and stuff like that yeah they, they i, I work with out. people whose job is to figure that out good luck to them yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Much smarter people than me that's for sure well we've kept you forever so we'll we'll get out of your hair but thank you so much for coming on and having this chat i think it's definitely going to be well received yeah thanks for thanks for having me i think people you know we may have been all over the place but i think we covered some good that was the intent <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no i'm here for i'm here for it